Um, we're going to read in Daniel 6. I think Dale's preaching through the whole chapter, but we're just going to focus on verses 16 through 20. They might be on the screen. Um, here we go. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? I thought we'd leave it on a little suspenseful moment. <laughs> Just for fun. Uh, first, obviously, I'm honored to be voted in as a pastor and to be able to celebrate today. Got a lot of my family here, too, so that means a lot. But uh, we're going to move on from hey, yay, Dale to a uh, much bigger topic yay, the Lord, the, the God we have. So, first, I just want to start with a question. Um, as, as much as you can tell, how do you respond when life doesn't go your way? So, like, what happens in your heart when stuff goes wrong? Uh, you can think about little things. Um, like, you don't get the raise you were hoping for. Or you get sick for a while, right? Like, just, I'm not like big sick, but just, you know, not feeling under the weather, or you have to shovel the snow again, or it's negative a thousand for a month straight. Right? Like those things. Like just what, what goes on inside of you. And then, and then think about like bigger things. So let's say you, you get fired, right? You lose your job, or you get dumped or, or cheated on, or um, like somebody you love dies, or, or your candidate doesn't get elected, right? Like what happens? What, what goes on in your heart in those moments? Where do you turn? And so... In this chapter, we're going to look, because this theme, in my mind, has been on re repeat for the entire book so far. We're six chapters into Daniel, and what we see over and over and over again is that Daniel, his friends, his nation are consistently dealt a bad hand. So we see Israel is conquered by Babylon. They're brought out as exiles. We're seeing Daniel's friends told, worship an idol or you're going to get burned alive. We're, in this chapter, we're going to see uh, Daniel have this choice, pray to the king or get eaten by lions. So, so obviously, those things probably don't happen to you or I. I mean, maybe, maybe that's, your boss gives you that ultimatum, but it, it probably doesn't look that way, right? But in one sense, um, I'd say these are the kinds of things we, we face all the time. Daniel and his friends were presented with the question, will I follow God or not? So his, his friends are presented with the question, am I going to bow down to the idol or not? Daniel's presented with the question, will I eat the food the king wants me to eat or not? Here he's told, will I, will I pray to the king or not? Right? The, the question is, am I going to follow God or not? When things get tough, am I going to stick with it? 
And we face that question every single day. This marks our life as Christians. So, like for us, it might be uh, tax season. Will you kind of uh, smudge your taxes a bit for a bigger return or not? Like when you're on TurboTax, what do you, what do you put? Right? Those, those are, should I follow God or not moments. Uh, you, you lost, or you have like sin, or you lie, or you cheat, you do something. Will you confess it or not? That, that's your question. And so for, for us, I think this book is, is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, these moments of life are not just moments where we lament, but they're choices, they're opportunities to follow God's way or not. So tonight I'm going to point out two things in the passage, okay? I want to ask two things. How do we respond to God when life doesn't go our way? Like in those hard moments, how do we? So that's, that's very much the human side. We're going to look at Daniel and we're going to say, what does Daniel do? What marks what he's doing to respond to these hard moments in a good way? So it's the human side up. And then we're going to, the second question is, how does God help us in those hard moments? So that's very much a God down. What is God doing in Daniel? What does God do for us when we face these situations to strengthen us? So I'll pray and then we'll jump in. God, I am so excited that I get to preach um, and tell people about you. And I feel honored in that. And I want you to open our eyes to see you. And I want to have a bigger view of you when we leave. I want to feel confidence in who you are when we leave. And I know that happens by your spirit. I know that happens as we open your word. I know these things are powerful. And I know it happens when we gather all of these things, God, you've said are powerful. So I just ask for you to do what you said you'll do. And I'm so grateful you're with us. So lift up this time in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Daniel 6. And we'll try to answer those two questions here. I'm going to start in, in verses 1 through 2. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer any loss. So our chapter kind of starts out here announcing a new government. If you've been with us, Babylon was kind of in control for a while, King Nebuchadnezzar. And at this point in the book, the Medes and the Persians, two nations, come together, conquer Babylon, and Darius, in this passage, is the new kind of chief in command. That's what we're going to get. And what you see here is he's appointing 120 satraps and three administrators. The satraps are kind of across this whole new land, right? You, you walk into a new job, you got a bunch of new territory, and you start to put, kind of putting it into order. So you got the 120 satraps, and you have three administrators above them that basically make sure they don't exploit the king. Okay, so they're, they're that tier. And Daniel, we're told, is one of them in that tier. Let's keep going in verse 3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I love this. You have a new government, and yet we have the same old Daniel. And if you've been with us in the book, this is what happens. Daniel's a foreigner. He's a, he's a young man. He gets picked as kind of this like task force for the king to try to develop some new leaders. And he shoots right to the top. And over and over again in the book, you just kind of see this. Everybody's kind of doing their thing. And Daniel just cannot be kept down. He's always promoted. He's always brought up. And so here again, we have a brand new nation. The Persians are in town. New king. And Daniel once again rises. 
At this point in time, Daniel's, he's an old man. He's probably 70 or 80 years old, but he's still got some fight in him, and I like that. He rises right to the top. Let's keep going in um, verses 4 and 5 here. I want to see what, what happens here. At this, the administrators and the satraps try to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So as Daniel's about to shoot to the top, the king says, hey, I'm actually going to put you above the administrators. I'm going to put you, it's going to go Darius, Daniel, administrators, satraps, and then everybody else. And as this is about to happen, the satraps and the administrators get ticked off, right? They get jealous. They get envious. They go, why? It's classic. Why did he get the promotion, not me? Right? Very classic. And I kind of appreciate that. And uh, they, they hatch this plan. We, we're, they're going to try to basically exploit Daniel. They're, they're going to try to kind of slander him or, or just cut his legs out from under him as the king wants to do this. And so the first place they look, you'll see, they look in government affairs. Okay? And if you think about it, these are Daniel's, like get in the picture, these are Daniel's Co-workers, he's one of his administrators, right? There's three administrators. And there's employees, the satraps, the people he's looking over. And they go in the realm in which they have the most amount of overlap with Daniel. And they say, well, we're going to find blackmail, basically. And the text says they can't find it. That's kind of crazy. 70, 80 years into this thing, you've got all these people who you're overseeing and they literally can't find anything. I picture the, I picture the boardroom. They got, they got this kind of slander team. They go, okay, sex scandal team. Did you find anything on Daniel? No. Uh, money laundering team. You must have found something. No. Uh, how, how does he treat the old lady across the street and her cat? No. Okay. They literally, imagine this. Somebody spends their, like the whole team puts all the resources to find some dirt on you, and they find nothing. And in government. That, that's another one, right? I won't even go there. Uh, <laughs> So then they go, they go plan B here, and they say, okay, we're never going to find anything in regards to how he handles government. Let's look how he follows his God. Okay, so that, that's very much plan B. Let's, let's see the plan they kind of put together here. Verses 6 through 9. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree into writing. A couple things here. Notice, they go to the king, they're set forth with their plan, and they say, all of us have agreed that you should do this new law, which is clearly a lie, right? Daniel doesn't know about this. And they even throw in the prefects, the advisors, the governors, they just say, everyone in the nation wants you to do this. Right? You can feel the slime. I can. So they go and they say, hey, this, everyone wants you to do this. And they want him to put in a law that only allows the, the people in the nation to pray to the king for 30 straight days. And they say, if anybody doesn't do it, the punishment is... Feed him to the lions. Give the lions dinner. And this this is kind of this is kind of a rookie mistake for Darius, right? So Darius 
looks at him and goes, well, everyone agrees, you know, I, you know, it's a new nation, right? I'm trying to make everybody happy. I'm trying to let people know I'm in charge. Of course they should pray to me for 30 days, right? And so they, they trick him into putting this into law in a way that cannot be altered. Even Darius the king can't change this law. Let's see how, that's how Darius responds. Let's, let's see how Daniel responds. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the, the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. You gotta love Daniel. He doesn't flinch, right? Text says, when he heard the law, he went home to pray. And not only did he go up to pray, right? If the text says he goes into his house, he goes upstairs, he opens the windows wide to Jerusalem, he kneels down, right, and prays and gives thanks to God. Not just once, three times a day. What a lunatic, right? <laughs> this, this very much is a, is a demonstration, you'd say, right? Daniel knows what he's doing. This, this is not, he could have he went, well, I'm just going to pray in secret. I'll pray in my car, right? I'll pray in my closet. Mm -hmm. Daniel knows what he's doing. He, this is a big life-ending stand, and he's willing to take it. He's willing to take it. So I want to pause here at this moment in time and, and ask that first question again. How do we depend on God when life gets hard? Like Daniel, like this hard moment is hinged. Am I going to pray to the king or am I going to meet the lions? That's a hard moment, right? And what does he do? What marks in here? I'm going to use a phrase people don't like. So we'll, we'll, uh, I'll try to convince you to like it as we go. But Daniel, when I read this, Daniel's life is marked by what I'll say is spiritual discipline. And you, you get this from the text because um, it says he prayed just like he had always done. This is very much another day in Daniel's life, right? He prays three times a day on repeat. He prays in such a way that they make this law to catch him. They go, well, he's going to pray. We'll, just, we'll go there, right? That's obvious to them. It's that obvious. He prays in such a way that they go to his house and catch him. They go, okay, right on time, Daniel. There you go. Yep, pray. Like, that's pretty remarkable, right? That power of spiritual discipline, I want, I want to hit two points on this, okay? Because this matters, I think. The first one um, I'd say is when spiritual discipline comes up, and I use spiritual discipline to mean prayer or like Bible study or fasting, those kinds of habits of the soul that we're told uh, help encourage our hearts to the Lord. But the first thing I'd say is I am 100% convinced that we've been fed a huge lie about habits and disciplines in the Christian life. Like, I just feel this weight. I feel this weight that, that any kind of rigid discipline or effort towards Christian maturity has been villainized. Like, we've been told, and this, this, is, this is what gets kind of crazy, in past generations, striving and working out your salvation, you know, disciplining your body to pursue holiness was something to, to be praised. It was something to celebrate. And now, in our generation, any kind of suggestion of a command or effort towards Christian maturity, all of a sudden, what do people say? Legalism. Mm. I think we just go there, right? Whoa. Don't be legalistic. We've been 
I think we've been told, we've been taught, and I, I don't know where it came from, uh, but we've been given this kind of false legalism that is completely cutting out what God meant to nourish our souls. It's meant to be a gift. It's meant to be fuel, fuel for feeble souls. And now, anytime we're told to do anything, we run away. I, I'm, I'm getting, I'm hearing amens. I'm seeing a lot of head nods. But just like, I know what you mean. Because if I said today, let's say this. This is my main point in the sermon. You must evangelize. You feel it? Right? If I said, you should tie. Every one of you should tie. Right? If I, if I said, you should fast. Right? Like, our legalism radar goes berserk. Why do you tell me to do something? It's craziness. But, but listen, literally those things, those examples, are what the Bible says. The Bible gives those commands. Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He's not saying, hey, maybe if you want to. He's saying, do it. Do it, right? We're told that giving to the, to the church financially to support the pastors is a good thing. We're told to pray, not just every day, but without ceasing. We're literally told, never stop praying. So, so uh, to me, if I, if I just quote the Bible and people, people go, that's legalism, something's off. Something's off. And this isn't Old Testament, right? This is New Testament. Just, just to clarify that one, right? Um, so here's my point. I think we've let a fear of this false legalism gut our faith of the fuel God's designed for it. If you just, you can't, this is what I feel like, you can't even tell anyone anymore to pray every day. Like all you can do is say, hey, praying every day really helps me and hope they get the breadcrumbs. You know what I mean? Like you feel that? You, you just can't say, hey, pray. It helps. Do it. You just gotta hope they kinda catch it. And this robs, this is the point, it robs each of us of the life and wholeness and joy that God wants for our souls. Like we've, we've slashed our tires and wonder why the, the ride is so crappy. Right? I mean, do you feel that? So this first reason I think we don't have spiritual disciplines is, like Daniel, because we've, we've mutated legalism to something it's not. Legalism is a bad thing. This is the bad thing that legalism is trying to take away. Anything that somebody tells you to do that earns and merits the love of God in your life for salvation is a lie. That's legalism. We want to cut that out. I'm not telling you to do these things and to do this to make God like you. Okay. Uh, illustration. I thought about this last night. Somebody gives you a car. Gives you a car. You sign the documents. It's yours. That, that transaction's finished. And then the guy goes to you and says, hey, by the way, um, it's really good to change the oil. It's really good to, you know, rotate the tires. Like, and, and then what if you went, whoa, whoa, whoa. You said it was free. <laughs> right? Like you'd be like, he, he'd be like, no, the car's yours. I'm not arguing about the car. The car is yours. That's already been done. And for you, salvation's done in Jesus Christ. This is not about salvation. This is about maximizing the salvation, the wholeness, the joy, the power of the Spirit in your life that God wants for you. Come on. The commands in the Bible are not prisons. They're the get-out-of-jail cards. And they really are. You see this in Daniel, right? There's life in this. There's power in this. There's joy in this. 
If we just label it as legalism, I think we miss mm -hmm. so much good for us. The second point on spiritual disciplines I want to hit before we move on is just the, the pattern and the value of it from Daniel's perspective. So I get the I get the sense from the passage that Daniel's very much on autopilot here. Right? Like he he just goes and does what he's always done. At that moment in time, Daniel doesn't stop and go, I wonder if I should pray now. You know, like the decree goes out, maybe prayers, yeah, I should do that. That's not the question he answers. The question in Daniel's life at that moment is not, should I start praying? But is today the day I stop? Is today the day I give up? Is today the day I mail it in? See how that's an easier question? The, the right path for Daniel is the ordinary one. It's the familiar one. It's the one he walks every single day. So to deviate, to walk away from life, would be a deviation. It would stand out. It would be, what are you doing? He'd have to reinvent the way his life works. And there's safety in there. This is just the point. There's safety there. When you build these habits of grace, when you walk these roads and make them not just, uh, when you smooth them out by walking on them, there's safety there. You can lean on them when things get tough. So the, the picture here is just, think about, think about uh, a diet. They're getting in shape, right? When somebody wants to get in shape, there's two phases. Probably more, but for my sake, there's two. One is... You, you start you know, changing your diet, you stop eating the stuff you love, you start eating the stuff you hate, you, you work out a lot, you, you're sore every day, you don't have as much time because you're at the gym or you're driving or running or whatever. Like that's phase one, and it's kind of uh, extreme. Like you just all of a sudden have to cut out all this stuff and change fundamentally what you're about. The second phase, though, is, is a lot easier. The second phase is just don't go back, right? Like the second phase... You're in shape, you're healthy, you have these habits, you have these rhythms, you're used to the grind, you're not as sore anymore, your body's used to it, and it's just a, don't give up. Just continue what you've done. And that's the power of spiritual disciplines, to push through that first phase and find the joy and the life that, that Daniel has. It's not always an uphill climb. There is that time, like it is tough just to, to sort of repattern your life, but there's fruit there. There's grace there, it gets easier. It gets good. I just like, like people like feeling healthy, right? That's why they do phase one. In the same way, that, that works for the soul. Paul uses this type of language uh, when he says that he beats his body into submission. Mm. Or he says, hey, physical training is of some value, but training in godliness of greater value in every way. Like Paul sees the Christian life very much as a marathon. Very much as a marathon. And he wants to finish well. He's training for it. He's working at it. And, and Daniel here is, is at the end of his spiritual marathon, and, and he's in shape. These spiritual disciplines have strengthened him for this juncture, for this moment. And I want to be like that. Like, I read this, and I go, man, this shames me, right? Like, this is not my life. So I'm not saying, hey, be like me. I'm saying, be like Daniel. Be like Daniel, because God has really blessed Daniel in these things. So... Just closing out here, what, what do we do? What does Daniel do to prepare for these hard moments to handle them? Some of it is spiritual discipline and flush this false legalism out of your mind. Christian effort, these commands God gives you is because he wants to give you water in the desert. He wants to feed hungry souls. He wants to bring grace. He wants you to feel wholeness. He wants you to feel near. Right? He wants you to sit at his feet and say, I'm hungry, I want more. That's what these disciplines are doing. Daniel's tapping in. He's saying, God, I want to hear your voice because it's so powerful and good and life-giving. Mm -hmm. 
Let's keep going. Verses 11 here, verse 11 through 13. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in, the, in writing. He still prays three times a day. So, these, this is, this is, this is great. These, these men find out um, what Daniel's doing. He's always praying, and they go report him, right? And you get this kind of sleazy nature again, because they tell him who Daniel is. Literally, the king is about to put him above the entire kingdom. And they go, hey, you remember Daniel? The guy that we work with every single day. You put us, you told us he's going to be in charge of the whole country. <laughs> you get that. And, and look, at, look at Darius' response here. 14. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. I read this passage, and Daniel strikes me as a, or, uh, Darius strikes me as a pretty good guy. That's feel for him. Feels like he got stuck a bit, right? So they, they come, they tell him about Daniel, and it says he's greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel. Made every effort until sundown. So I picture the palace pretty, pretty hectic that day. He's going back and forth, he's crunching numbers, he's looking at old laws, he's trying to figure out, how can I get out of this? It says at sundown, these schemers come back and they say, hey, time's up. You, like, this is the law, you gotta, you gotta do it, right? And so Darius does this, he puts Daniel into the, into the pit of lions, he puts a rock on it, seals it with his ring so nobody tampers with it, and then it says he kind of kind of crawls back to his room and he does, literally doesn't sleep. He stays up all night, he says no, no entertainment, no food, no sleep, he's just torn about this. Look what happens. Next, 19 to 20. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Next morning comes, Darius hurries over, right? Quick thing, he's like, okay, let me just see. And then there's a point here that's kind of weird to me. He calls out, A, he, he hurries, and he calls out and says, Hey, has your God, the living God, saved you? But there seems to be hope here. Darius, for some reason, thinks there's a shot Daniel's alive. He doesn't probably run if he thinks this is, there's no chance, right? He may have heard the stories of the way Daniel's God had saved him from the furnace. Or from, but he, might, he could have heard that. He could have heard about the dreams being interpreted. So there's something in Darius, and he uses this phrase, living God, which has, it's not just God, it's this idea that God's alive and active in the day-to-day -day stuff of this world. 
Darius sees that. He goes, your God has, has, kind of has a habit of dipping in down here. Has he done it again? So Darius calls out in hope, and look what happens in verses 21 through 23 here. Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. This is crazy! The man is in a, a pit with hungry lions. They take the rock off, and he goes, yeah, these kitties are fine. <laughs> this is nuts! And this is the living God at work. What does he say? My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. Daniel goes, I didn't have anything to do with this. Daniel, God decided today that the lions weren't hungry for me. That's nuts! Just look here at 24. There's, there's this kind of quick glimpse into the contrast here. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. Right? Like, it's not kumbaya. I think this is here for two reasons. Um... One, just to show how miraculous the fact that Daniel lived. Like that, that, that's miraculous. These lions were not full and old. They were hungry. So this was a miracle that God saved Daniel. That's, that's point one. The other one, two, uh, you get this picture of a great reversal of justice. Daniel the innocent walks out of the pit, and the guilty are left in the pit. In, 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 in complete and utter justice. So, I want to stop here and then hit my second point. How does God, how does God strengthen us in hard moments? Like we already saw, I already point, I suggested, hey, Daniel handles these moments by building a life of spiritual discipline, sitting at the feet of God, being ready, feasting on the graces God's provided consistently. But what is what does God do that strengthens us? This is the fun part. Uh, in this entire book, I think there's a simple theme. God wins. Like, our God always wins. Darius, the king of this large empire, sees God in action and just says, you win. You get this vibe. I get this vibe that this is a trial of sorts. The whole book is a trial. God versus everything else. So, so Daniel's friends are threatened to be thrown into the furnace. God wins. They walk out unscathed. Daniel doesn't eat the food the king tells him to eat. He's risking his life. He eats vegetables, and he gets more fit than ever. And everyone goes, wow, you're way better than everyone here. God wins. You see that? None of the magicians or sorcerers or wise men around King Nebuchadnezzar could tell him his dream. Daniel walks in and says, hey, my God knows it. He wins. Here, right, what do we see? Daniel gets thrown in the pit of lions, just like the second group of people, but who walks out alive? Our God wins. 
This is the ultimate bedrock truth right here. That our God is unquestionably sovereign and supreme over everything in the universe. There's no doubt about it. Like there's no quarterback controversy in God's universe. Right? Like he's never cornered. He's never off guard. He never goes, oh crap, I missed that moment. He always, always wins. He never loses. And listen, this is what's fun. There is an incredible power in that truth. You might feel it now. There's power in it. Does Daniel accept a death sentence with the lions if he doesn't think his God's going to win? No chance. Does his friends walk into the furnace to be burned alive if they think their God's not going to win? Not a chance. That's the power of the fact when you know that you've got a winning team. So this isn't just like academic high theology. God wins. God's supreme. God, like they, they, I'm not, these are not big truths devoid of the everyday stuff you and I go through. It's literally, this truth is the wind in our sails. It's the power behind the habits we make to follow him. It's the power to handle the hard moments in life. And this, this, this is true. Daniel doesn't know what victory is going to look like here. Right? Like he doesn't, I, I think he probably thought he was going to die. He's an old man at this point. You know, he doesn't have many rodeos left. I think he's probably, thinks, yeah, this is it. But he does know God can save him. And he does know if God doesn't save him, he will in the end. Like in the micro, it can go bad. But in the macro, God's winning this thing. This is the same thing we saw in chapter 3, 17. If we, these are Daniel's friends, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we'll not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. You know, he's going to win. You may, you may take this day, it doesn't matter. He's going to win. So they walk into the furnace boldly. With, with God rightly in view like this, Daniel has nothing to fear. Right? He's, he's given the winning team. He's not going to lose. God's on his side. God always wins. So, so this, is, this is kind of the main, my main burden tonight. Um, so just listen up for a second. A, a small God makes for small faith. Don't you feel that? If Daniel and his friends do not believe that their God's winning, they just don't walk out in this kind of old faith. Daniel doesn't go up and open the windows and pray, bidding him to die. A small God makes for small faith. And this is also the good news. A big God. A big God makes for big, bold, life-altering faith. My friends, you know this, but this is, this is the truth. This is the good news of this passage. You and I who trust in Jesus Christ truly have the very biggest God in the universe. There's no one else like him. When I, I, I believe this strongly, I discovered this, I feel like, every three days. This is just on repeat in my mind, so when this passage came up, I wanted to hit this. When we are convinced of the end, we live different today. 
When we know the end, we live different today. There's power in the present. So why is every movie so stressful the first time you see it? This is a thriller. You don't know how it's going to end, right? You're wondering. You're in suspense, right? That's what suspense is. I don't know how it's going to go. Frodo in The Lord of the Rings is stressed because he doesn't know if it's going to end well. And there's so much at stake. And obviously, we're not in a movie, right? There's way more at stake. There's way more at stake. And what we're told, we're presented with a God who says, I'll wait for you. There is no power or darkness or threat to God to unseat him. He's never leaving the throne. The only reason, listen, friends, the only reason we have to doubt this truth is if we look at God's history and say he's got a history of losing. And I don't know about you, but this is me. I read the Bible and I don't find that reason. I don't, like, I don't see it. I look at friends and I look at older saints. I look at church history and I just go, yeah, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see him losing much. He may, get, he, he, he may let a battle go just because he wants to win the war more dramatically. Right? I see God. When I open up my Bible, this is what I see. I see God who breathes out stars and speaks the world into existence. I see God who floods the entire planet and then dries it up. A God that his, his people are right by the water. He parts the seas and says, walk through. I'll crush the army as they pass by. I see God. Literally, his people are in the desert. They go, I'm hungry. And he, he just showers food down. They're thirsty. He strikes a rock and water runs out. I see that, listen, I see God who the devil has to ask permission from. That's what we see. I see a God who literally stops the sun in the sky because he needs a little more daylight. And he splits this little boy's lunch to feed 5,000 people. A God who walks on the water and tells people everything they've ever done. I see a God who walks up to dead people and says, get up. That's him. This God chose to put his body to death for three days and then take him right back up again. He wins. This is the God I see. This is the God we're presented with. He wins. He does not lose. Don't believe the lie. Friends, if this God is for you, who can be against you? This is the glory of Romans 8, right? In context, whom shall we fear? Our God reigns. So the, the burden, just kind of as we draw up here, is I just think some of us, some of us have accepted a small God in a very big world. God's become powerless for what you're facing. He's become distant. He's become um, not applicable. And that's a lie. Just straight up, that's a lie. That is not the God of the Bible. That's not the God who created all things. And this is... Right, Darius sees it, says, yep, you win. We're told nations rise and nations fall, but our God remains. Me, the... He and I do this at dinner table. I don't, I don't know why we do it. I don't know where it started, I guess. But I'll stand up, like we'll be eating breakfast or, or lunch, or we're at the dinner table, and I'll just stand up and I'll say, some trust in chariots. 
Some trust in horses, and then she'll say it with me. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Just stand up on her chair. Try and get her But it's true. May we not be a church that trusts in the horses or the chariots, but in the God who wins. Yeah. Right. And this is this is what's sweet. Daniel's dependency on God brought a spotlight on God's glory. When he walks out and says, I think you're going to win here. God shines. God stands up and shines. So your daily choices, this, this is where it hits. Your daily choices matter a lot. They matter a lot. You get to choose, am I going to follow God or not? Will I take his road or not? Will I do it when it's hard? And I'm encouraging us to do that, to take that road. It's a better road. You win in the end. There's a long end. And as we close out here, this is the deal. Shutting lions' mouths. This is this is what's fun. Shutting lions' mouths is very small potatoes for our God. Right? Like this is just the ordinary stuff he does. This is him on a typical Monday. Isn't that crazy? Blows my mind. What Daniel didn't know, what you and I know, is that 600 years after this moment, Daniel climbs out of the pit, 600 years later, God's only beloved son would push the stone away and walk out of the tomb and say, you know what, I win. I win. He hangs on the cross and says, I'm going to win for you. I know your sin. I know where you're at. I know that you fail. You need someone to come win for you. He says, I'll do it. I'll do it. He comes out of the tomb and says, there's no contest. He slams the door shut on Satan, sin, and death and says, game over. I win. That's the God we believe in. That's the joy of Jesus. When we encourage you, look to Jesus. We want you to see how good he is. We want you to see how powerful he is. We want you to see that he can be with you and walk with you and overcome the road you're on. That no matter what suffering you have, because there are suffering days in the Christian life. This does not negate those things. But it gives you a power and a hope in the way it's going to end. There are better days ahead, Christian. Now or later, but it's coming. <laughs> the Bible says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you who believe. It's coming. Right? Jesus says, I'm going to the palace. I'm going to get your room ready. Right now, Jesus is fluffing the pillows. He's putting the mints on the pillows, right? He's doing a little towel art. He's going, they're coming. I'll go check in. Just fly over when you can. That's what we're told. That's the hope you have. So no matter how hard it is today, there is a tomorrow we're going to celebrate. We're going to rejoice in this God. We're going to look at it. He's going to put on a buoy all of the ways in which he conquered all of the evil in this life. And we're going to just celebrate. We're going to sit in reverence. I can't wait for that day. That's that wedding feast of the land. We're all going to raise our glasses and say, oh, what a king we have. So with this passage, I, I want to encourage you. As we close here, I want to encourage you to pursue habits of your soul, spiritual disciplines, not to earn God's favor, but to sit at his feet and ask for more, to feast on these graces he's given you. To deepen that well. This well does not run dry. 
You can drill a well in anything in this life, and I guarantee you it won't fill you like Jesus can. Again, not a hard mindset. This is not denying the real difficulty of this life. I'm not minimizing that. I'm just saying you have hope here. You have real hope. It matters. May we be that kind of people, and may we celebrate the fact that whatever you're going through, your God is with you. And he promises to redeem and deliver you. Hold fast, take heart, and let's celebrate him together. I'll pray. Jesus, this is worth celebrating. God, I feel my own heart, this, this um, pressure to doubt you. To think that my situation's unique. Or that you just don't care about me. All of these things are lies, God. I just pray against them. Pray against them in this room. Jesus, you do care about us. No matter where we are at when we walked in here, you do care about us. This word is for all of us, God. I pray, God, if nobody, if somebody here doesn't know you or believe in you, God, I pray that they would today. That they can repent, that they can turn, God. There's hope that won't let them down. And God, I pray that we would enjoy sitting at your feet, building a life that's eager to know you, to see your face, to hear your voice. Those wouldn't be weights, but they would be uh, wings for our souls. Thank you, God. It's in you we hope always. In Jesus' name, amen.